Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Uh, welcome to the Regulatory Policy Seminar. I'm Joe Aldi, the faculty chair of the Regulatory Policy Program. Uh, we're pleased to have you here today uh, to join in this discussion about EU regulatory policy. Uh, we're thrilled that this year we've been able to host Elizabeth Goldberg, who formerly served as the head of Smart Regulation for the European Commission. Elizabeth, as a senior fellow in the Mosavar Rukmani Center for Business and Government, has been looking at uh, and evaluating the experience in the EU and assessing its regulatory program and how to improve the implementation of regulatory policy. So this is in line with a number of talks we've had this year, where we had a discussion back in uh, the fall uh, with uh, um, Professor Rinda talking about the experience of sort of regulatory budgeting or sort of one in, one out, or some variation of, of, of one in, in, out. Different uh, uh, countries have been experimenting with different variations of that. Uh, we heard about this in the uh, experience in the United States with Naomi Rao earlier this semester. We're talking about how the Trump administration is implementing uh, their uh, one in, two out order. Uh, so it's great to hear again some uh, additional perspective, uh, in this case from the European standpoint, on assessing uh, regulatory performance and where we might see uh, European regulation going in the future. So, with that, Elizabeth, welcome to the seminar. Well, thank you. Joe, and thank you for inviting me to make the presentation today. As Joe mentioned, I was um, the director of SMART or Better Regulation in the European Commission for the last five years of my career, and I have been involved in better regulation or regulatory policy more or less for 15 years previous. So I have quite a bit of experience, but I decided to retire thinking that the system was set up and it was working and it was fine. But when I retired, two things, three things actually happened more or less on the same day. I retired, Mr. Trump, President Trump announced one in, one out, and I saw the possibility to come here for a fellowship in the Advertising Economist. And so that prompted me, these three events, these three stars lining up in the sky, um, to reflect a bit on EU regulatory policy, to have a look. I think that in the last few months that I was director, there was continuing pressure from the member states and from the business community to have some sort of regulatory offsetting or budgeting program. Continued insatiable appetite, really, of the business community for more, better regulation. Um, and this continues even recently. I don't know if any of you have had a look at the German coalition agreement. So that's the agreement that the parties have agreed on in order to govern in Germany for the next few years. But there as well in the European section, they call on Europe to have a one in one out system. So it's a topic that doesn't go away. And it motivated me to sort of stand back, have a look and say, well, what have we done in 15 years? What system have we put in place? Is it working? Is it working well? Um, would alternatives like one in one out work better? And then to, to try and draw a few conclusions. So that's where we are today and that's what I would like to um, talk to you about today. Basically in the last few months I've, I've um, put together uh, 
information paper on better regulation in the EU. And these are the different aspects of better regulation that I've looked at. The drivers, so the political context. Why, why did we even bother with regulatory policy? Why did we make the effort? What the system is in Europe, the policy, the tools we're using. The scope and methods, so is the system complete? Are there gaps? Should we be looking to complete the system? And then we get to the difficult part, the evidence. Are we working effectively? Is what we're doing relevant? Is it proportionate? Is it coherent? I'll come to that also because that um, impacts on the US. I was involved in the TTIP negotiations, which are now, of course, defunct, but the coherence of regulatory systems is a big topic these days. I'll try and weigh up to do a bit of assessing. Of course, having been involved and having been part of the architect of the system, I'm rather biased in some respects, but I try and be as objective as I can be. And then I'll look at the alternatives and look at what the member states in particular have done with regulatory budgeting and see if it works. But first, I think in order to talk about better regulation, you have to have a bit of an understanding about the system as such. And so I'll take you very briefly through um, how the EU governs. It is relevant because it's quite different than, than the situation you have here or the regulatory policy system here. So what does the EU regulate? Well, it's set out in the treaties. You have areas of exclusive competence, and that's where Brussels alone regulates. That's in trade, it's in customs, it's in fisheries resources. Most areas are shared competence, so Brussels legislates together with the member states. That's the case in the internal market, in environment, in public health, energy. You have a few areas that are joint, research and development and development aid. That means that the EU and the member states can regulate at the same time without having any legal constraints. And then you have areas, of course, which are purely domestic, health, education, tax, where the EU is not involved at all. Who regulates? Well, the Commission is the executive, and it proposes. It has the right of initiative. It's the only body in the EU that can propose legislation. And the Council and the European Parliament dispose. They're the ones that adopt legislation. So there's often a view or an understanding amongst um, practitioners that the Commission itself <clears throat> can adopt regulation. It can, but only in very um, circumcised situations, which are a little bit like your rules here in the US. They're called Delegated Implementing Acts. There, the Commission can adopt rules if it's given the mandate by the Parliament and Council to do so. So very quickly, you have here, I think, only look at the top part of this slide. You have the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers who decide through a process called Ordinary Legislative Procedure. They decide on legislation. The Commission proposes. And up top there, you have the European Council. That's what you see mainly on the news. That's when the heads of state and government get together. And they're providing strategic direction, but they do not decide on legislation. So very briefly, a directive is a piece of legislation which is adopted at EU level, but it needs to be transposed or integrated into the member state's national legal system. So um, a regulation in EU, EU jargon is something that applies directly. 
So if the EU adopts a regulation, for example, on roaming charges, I see a few of you who were here for the study group on telecoms, then it's directly applicable in the member states. And then, as I mentioned, you have the delegated and implementing regulations, which are very similar to the US rules. That's where the Commission is delegated the authority to adopt rules, but they should not be rules which affect the main legislation. They should just be implementing the legislation. So that was a two-minute course on EU governance, and it probably takes you a semester normally to get through all aspects of EU governance, but that's where the regulatory policy fits in. Regulatory policy is, of course, a priority for the Commission, clearly, because the Commission is the body that is developing and proposing legislation. Therefore, it's the body that needs the evidence base to legislate well. So what <coughs> drove the Commission to set regulatory policy or better regulation or smart regulation as a policy priority? Well, <clears throat> if you think back to about the year 2000, you realize that it was about 2000 that all the single market legislation in the EU was going into force. So all the regulators were, all the member states <clears throat> and local level, excuse me, <clears throat> were having the challenge of implementing EU law. There was a whole new body of law in the environmental area, and the EU was facing more complex challenges, climate change, telecommunications, and so on. So there was obviously a clear driver to regulate better, to have more evidence um, in, as a basis for uh, legislative development. There is also, and particularly from 2005 onwards, a very strong drive from the European Council, from the member states, for the Commission to regulate better. Now here, I was director starting in 2012, and I can tell you from 2012 to 2014, every time the European Council met at head of state and government level, they had a conclusion or they had um, something to say about the Commission regulating better. In other words, they were asking us all the time to do better. Why? Because it was one of the few things that the member states together could agree on. So when you're facing a financial crisis or you've got other crises that you have to have very difficult discussions on, if there was one thing that they could unite on, all 28, it was to ask the Commission to regulate better. So there, if, if, if you are interested and you look at the conclusions, you can see why um, my hair is grey now and it was dark before. No, I'm joking. Um, it's only one of the reasons. So there was also tremendous member state pressure. Um, the UK as a domestic has had a priority domestically of better regulation for years. It started in the late 90s and it gathered speed and strength over time. Um, Mr Cameron was very keen to um, encourage the Commission to adopt the UK regulatory approaches, including regulatory budgeting. In the initial settlement with Prime Minister Cameron, better regulation was a key chapter. There was to have been a subsidiarity review. Um, I should explain subsidiarity. It was one of the things I forgot. Subsidiarity is, is this European buzzword. We talk about taking decisions at the right level. So Europe should only legislate where it's necessary and where you can demonstrate that there's EU value added. Otherwise, it should be the member state or local level that's legislating. 
But in the UK settlement that, of course, didn't go ahead after the referendum, there was a chapter on subsidiarity and better regulation. And we had indeed at the time agreed that we would set up a program of targeting and regulatory budgeting for the UK. But that was declared null and void when the referendum, when the British voted to leave the, the EU. Germany started with the Merkel government in about 2005, 2006. They set up what's called the Norman Control Rat in Berlin and they are looking at all the um, regulatory initiatives of the German government and exercising quality control. The Dutch have always been active in regulatory policy. They've been active and proactive. They've gone through various phases and the Finns as well. They have both had their subsidiarity reviews where they've tried to identify legislation themselves that they think could be repatriated to national level. So there is a lot of pressure from the member states, a lot of pressure from business. I think it's probably no secret that Business Europe for years has lobbied the Commission to do a better job on regulating, to look at costs, to look at cumulative costs, um, and um, they have always, I'll come to this in a minute, they have always been supporters of the US government in arguing that um, Europe should make their draft impact assessments and draft proposals from the Commission um, available for public comment. Finally, you have other stakeholders. Now, interestingly enough, um, I'll come to this in a moment, the origins of the Commission's impact assessment were definitely in sustainable development. So starting in 2002, our motivation, and we're sitting in a room probably about half this size trying to figure out what we would do, we were figuring how we would set up a system where um, environmental and social impacts had the same, if you like, standing and bearing as economic impacts. And so for quite a few years, the environmental NGOs and the trade, um, sorry, excuse me, the health NGOs, the social NGOs, were partners in the better regulation um, effort, if you like. But starting, it wasn't coincident with me, but it came with me, they made quite a, a, a protest about the regulatory fitness program because they thought that the Commission was going too far in the direction of deregulation. And finally, just as final driver, of course, the Commission is a bureaucracy as well as an executive, and there was a need to modernize, to improve our working habits, and importantly, to try and get the evidence together to counter the Euro myths. Um, Euro myths here, I talk about the British tabloid press, the crooked cucumbers, all the um, issues that you saw in the press, which had a reason, had a justification, but you needed to have the evidence in order to counter them. Elizabeth, what was the crooked cucumber? Oh, sorry, crooked cucumbers. You see, I'm, I'm very biased. If, you, if, you've, if, if you've lived in Europe, whenever someone wants to complain about how intrusive Europe is in the lives of Europeans, they say, look at the, look at the rule on cucumbers, which say if your cucumbers are a little bit crooked, that they shouldn't be marketed. Now, why do we have rules on cu crooked cucumbers? It's because of the Dutch and the Germans, and they wanted to get the Spanish out of the market. Um, because if you have natural cucumbers, your natural cucumbers are not sleek and, and straight. So it's always used as a caricature of the EU going too far in legislating things that don't need to be legislated and that Europeans should be allowed to eat crooked cucumbers.
So better regulation obviously became a priority and has been a priority since 2000. Started in the Prodi Commission, as I mentioned, I think most, oop, many of you were too young to remember, but um, at the beginning, 2000, 2001, I think we first had the Seattle WTO meeting demonstrations, very violent demonstrations. Well, in 2002, there was a European summit in Gothenburg in Sweden as well, very violent, lots of NGOs, lots of um, protesters on the streets. And one of the conclusions at that European Council was that there should be um, sustainable development should be steamed behind all regulatory development at EU level and that we should work out a way to make that happen. And the way that we made it happen or the way we thought that was most sensible to make it happen was to have an impact assessment system that took into account environmental, social and economic impacts in the impact assessment. So the first Barroso Commission took that over in 2005 and you will see a gradual um, integration of different instruments into the regulatory, regulatory policy framework. So first impact assessment, you have to start somewhere, so that was the first step to get the commission, commission departments doing impact assessment. Had to have some scrutiny of the impact assessments, otherwise we all know as good civil servants that um, probably the path of least resistance would be taken in terms of the analytical preparations. So we had a scrutiny board that was set up within the commission. Reduction of administrative burden. This was a big theme about the time that with the German presidency, the UK was pushing, so all of, many of the member states, <coughs> excuse me, agreed on a program to reduce administrative costs in legislation by 25%, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, and then on implementation, if you go back to the slide of competences, you see that the commission proposes, the council and the parliament adopt, it's the member states that implement. So the member states have the um, responsibility to implement. If they don't implement the legislation, either they don't put it on their national law books or they don't implement it correctly, then the European Commission is responsible for launching legal proceedings against them. And these leading legal proceedings go to the Court of Justice eventually and um, decisions are taken. But Obviously, a legal proceeding is not a reflection of success of implementation of policies. It's a reflection of a problem. And we were having ever-increasing legal cases at the time, so our approach in the better regulation cycle was to try and work more closely with member states to help them to implement the law instead of taking them to court if they didn't implement the law. So that started in the Barroso Commission. The second Barroso Commission put a big emphasis on evaluation. So um, evaluation had traditionally been done for financial programs, um, but not systematically for regulations or legislation. We tried to turn that around. And we launched what was called the Regulatory Fitness Program, which was to make sure that the stock of legislation was fit for purpose, to look at cumulative impacts and to, uh, of course, improve our um, evaluation performance. When Mr. Juncker took over in 2014, um, he called it a better, better regulation commission. There was a first vice president, sounds funny when I say it, but the vice president of the commission is in charge of better regulation. And all the different elements of the policy cycle were brought together and integrated guidelines. They put a big emphasis on strategic planning. So obviously that's important. The less legislation you have, the 
fewer costs you normally have. So they wanted to have a very prioritized work program, and they put a lot of emphasis on stakeholder consultation, openness, and transparency. So at present, you, you can um, um, provide feedback throughout the whole cycle. So in this slide, basically, it's EU better regulation in one slide. The aim is, of course, to legislate better, to support the legislators in having improved legislation to minimize costs, maximize benefits, foster sustainable development, as I've mentioned before, and also foster transparency. The means, strategic planning. So when I talk about strategic planning, the Commission has every year a work program that identifies the priority items that will be proposed in any given year. And before any item gets onto that work program, it has to go through a screen political screening process. Impact assessment, again, impact assessments are, are done on proposals that have significant impacts. It's sort of a circular definition. It's not like here. We do not say 100 million euros is a significant impact. We let the departments themselves decide when their proposals have a significant impact. But normally speaking, any proposal that's in the Commission work program should have significant impacts or it wouldn't be there. So normally speaking, what's in the Commission work program has significant impacts. Evaluation, fitness checks, which are cross-cutting evaluations, stakeholder consultation. Here, with the new reforms, we consult at every stage of the policy cycle. So we start off with what's called an inception impact assessment. So the basic idea about a proposal goes out on the web for comment. During an impact assessment, the services are required to hold a 12-week consultation partly in response to our discussion with the Americans, but not only. We put out the proposal of the Commission after it's been adopted by the Commission for comment for eight weeks. Now I say partly, partly in response to, to the Americans. It's always been a debate, why does the Commission not put out draft impact assessments for comment? The reply of the Commission has always been, well, why would we do that before the Commission has taken a decision? Because what the Commission is putting out is at any rate just a proposal. It has to go to the legislature. So the solution in all of this was, was to put out the proposal as such, adopted by the Commission, for feedback for eight weeks after the Commission has adopted it and before the legislature starts to look at it. There's a broad scope, as I mentioned, um, consultation throughout, and in the 2015 package that the Juncker Commission adopted, the Impact Assessment Board, which was an internal scrutiny board, um, was strengthened. So there are um, half external members, half internal members, and it operates as an independent body within the Commission. There's still a Commission Director General that chairs the Regulatory Scrutiny Board. Can I ask? Mm -hmm. There's a lot on that previous slide. There's two questions that came to mind, though, if you don't mind if I, if I interrupt. The aims. Mm -hmm. We had some aims that I would describe as kind of process aims, yeah. bringing evidence to improve the legislative effort and transparency. And then somewhere we care about outcomes, but we say minimize costs and maximize benefits. These are two different objectives. Essentially, you didn't have maximize net social benefits, where we try to integrate those objectives. So when you have multiple aims that are not always internally consistent with each other, how does the Commission sort of weight or balance different objectives? Well, I think um, you, 
your question assumes that for each proposal we put on the table, there's a calculation of the costs and benefits. And that's a big assumption. <laughs> so I think I'll, I'll come to that later. But normally speaking, the in the impact assessments, if there's, if there's quantification, it's about 50%. If there's monetization, it's even less. So I think that the aim, the first aim, is just to provide some evidence to decision makers, full stop. And there, most services use what's called multi-criteria analysis. They look at different aspects of the policies. You'll often see an impact assessment, plus minus, almost checks, if you like, um, that don't have the um, quantification underpinnings. So I fully appreciate that there'd be sometimes when you're looking at more at the stock of legislation, so you're looking at an existing law and you'll say, we want to minimize cost. Or we want to reduce cost, sorry. So then you use cost-effectiveness criteria um, without necessarily, at that point, looking at the benefits. But normally speaking, if um, a proposal comes on the table, the assumption is that the benefits are greater than the costs and that that sh could be demonstrated. But it's not always the case. Okay. The, the other question I have is, in describing the process of putting the analysis out for public feedback, mm -hmm. and you noted that in the EU, for, for the Commission, once they have completed their work and they've sent it on for the <clears throat> sort of dual legislative assessment, you know, describing that quite right, but how, how I interpret the European system. Uh, that's when the analysis is out there for sort of public consumption and feedback. And I'm curious about whether that then feeds into just the up or down vote. Does it actually change how, does it inform potential changes to the proposal as it's going through that legislative phase? Because we typically see in the U.S. context that when there's a regulatory proposal and a regulatory impact analysis of that regulatory proposal, there's often say, a number of options in that proposal, and the analysis helps us understand these different options before the regulator at the final stage decides on, here's the way we're going forward, that is typically some, in fact, legally, it needs to be some variant of one of the options that's put on the table at the proposal stage. So I'm wondering how the analysis feeds into, is it just informing an up or down vote, or do we actually see the analysis when it moves to the legislative stage where the legislature starts to modify the proposals they receive. Well, in order to keep the system fairly simple, um, the impact assessment is for to inform the commission. That's the legal standing of the impact assessment. But it goes to the parliament and it goes to the council. So when the parliament committees look at the proposal, and when the council working groups look at the proposal they have taken the obligation to first review the Commission impact assessment. So they, they should get an idea of options, but then they are not bound by the impact assessment. What they can ask is the Commission to supplement certain parts of the impact assessment. I think that's happened in the case of battery legislation. Um, it's happened in the case of air quality legislation, where the Commission said, no, you have all the information you need, and they disagreed and they went off and did their own study. That's also possible. Um, so they make the decision, and they would certainly not like the Commission to have them say, you must choose the preferred option. They say, that's our democratic right to do whatever we want. 
um, increasing their using the impact assessment, and when they're not satisfied, they either ask us to supplement or they do their own. But the council as such is, uh, the parliament has, uh, the, is more um, able to do that. The council, when it meets on the commission proposal, usually has 28 member state positions that have to be reconciled. So there, what we suggest is that the member states themselves look at the impact assessment and see how it applies in their national circumstance and come to the council working group with their inputs. But there's no obligation for either the parliament or the council to either accept the options, reject the options, or, or, or otherwise. Um, is the system complete? Well, I don't, probably you can't read that. Um, what I've relied on in my um, paper is to look at the assessment done by the OECD. Now, every two years, the OECD regulatory division does an assessment of its members' um, regulatory policy systems. They don't look at quality. They don't look at impact. They only look if the, if the system's there. And they have judged in the 2015 outlook that the commission um, system was complete. As I mentioned before, they had some comments on consultation. This was before the introduction of consultation through the policy cycle. So we're hopeful that um, at the next round that the, um, there will continue to be positive and that the consultation aspects will have um, improved in terms of their grading. Outputs. Obviously, the system's generating a lot of outputs. So you can see that the numbers are fairly impressive, but the numbers alone don't tell you much. So what I've tried to do here, and again, it's fairly, um, fairly small print, but if you look at the numbers of proposals relative to the numbers of impact assessments, you'll see that of the proposals in ordinary procedure, which are usually the ones with most significant impacts, they're, they're covered by about 80% by impact assessment. So that shows you that the system is working and it's covering most important proposals. And recently there were figures generated to show that as a result of the evaluation first discipline, that 45% of all impact assessments now coming to the commission have a base in evaluation. So that is a very positive figure because previous to that, very few evaluations were feeding into impact assessments because services were not doing policy evaluations or they were not using them in the policy cycle. So this is a little bit, um, I think, of interest to my American colleagues. And you can't really compare. There's a bit of comparison of apples and oranges here. But in the US, I took this from the most recent OIRA report, um, where they put out the figure of 36,255 rules um, in 10 years. Now, in 10 years in the EU, we have significantly less. But I'll come to this in a minute. The apples and oranges are because on the EU side, we're not, I don't include delegated acts. On the US side, it's only the rules of the executive agencies, so not congressional bills, not independent, um, not the rules of independent agencies. So it's not, you can find fault with the figures, but it gives you a little bit an idea of the, the magnitude of the two systems and how they relate. So of the 36,000 proposals here, the OMB report shows that 2006, 
170 were reviewed during that period of time, um, and that of that number, 609 had um, regulatory impact assessments. So I've put together the same figures for the EU, again, a little bit apples and oranges, but it shows that proportionally more impact assessment is being done on the EU side. Again, we'd have to put that, put the other figures in and do another calculation to have complete, complete logical comparison across the board. But what I understand is your independent agencies are not required to do impact assessment and neither is your Congress. So, um, so that wouldn't change much the statistics in terms of the RAs. Not being done. Most of the Lisa. So it just gives it an order of magnitude and lets you compare the, the outputs of the two systems. Now we get to the difficult part, and that is how do you assess the effectiveness of a system? Um, I've had discussions with Joe, we've talked about this, and net social benefits. So if you were just to take a quantitative measure, you could say, well, we'll look at, we'll look at net social benefit and we'll look at all the proposals, and if they all add up, we can say that the system is operating effectively. It's one approach. But because, as I mentioned, the Commission is not monetizing, or not, certainly not quantifying in all its impact assessments, and certainly monetizing less, that doesn't give you a very satisfactory result, because you'd only be looking at a very small proportion of the impact assessments. So in my analysis, what I've tried to do is to take, um, similar to what some academics have done in the past, I don't pretend to be an academic, I just copied them, um, was to look at the quality of the in the quality of the scrutiny board. So if they're getting positive opinions by those who who are looking at whether they complied with the rules, that's an indicator of quality and effectiveness. Another indicator um, is I'll come back to this. One would think if if the quality of the analytical work is good you would have less problems in the legislature. Now, obviously, there's lots of things that can enter into a political discussion, but if equality is good, it means that, normally speaking, you should be able to go more rapidly through the legislature. So I've looked at first, second, third readings in the legislature. Normally, if your quality is good, you should have less problems in implementation, so that would be reflected in fewer infringements fewer legal cases. Now, all of these are very indicative, and they're certainly not all scientific. But if you look at the results, roughly, and this goes back to when the, the first scrutiny was done in 2006, roughly 60% of the um, impact assessments are okay. The other 40% have to be redone. So I think that's broadly similar to what happens in the US that there's a, a certain rejection of about 40% of, of the work that comes into the scrutiny body. We've looked at um, if the certain, I should say that if, if a proposal is not accompanied by an impact assessment that has a positive opinion of the board, it should not be considered by the commission. It should not be on the table. But there are always political decisions. There are always things that go ahead regardless. And so about 4% of the bad impact assessments or, or the proposals based on impact assessments that fail the board um, go to the Commission. Again, it's not a great figure. It's not good to have 4% of your proposals not based on solid evidence. But nonetheless, 
it shows that most of the proposals going to the executive for decision um, meet quality standards. Then, um, I, I will not go into detail because we don't have time, but there are various levels of scrutiny. So you have the regulatory scrutiny board in the Commission. The Parliament has a scrutiny body that looks at our impact assessments and delivers an opinion. The Council is increasingly looking at our impact assessments and delivering an opinion. The Court of Auditors looks at the Commission systemically. They looked at the system in 2010 and they're now looking at impact assessments and they're now looking at the evaluation system and they will come up with comments on that. Our internal audit scrutinizes us and increasingly the member state regulatory scrutiny bodies are scrutinizing us. So there's a lot of scrutiny going on of the impact assessments. I have a question for you. So my experience as somebody who does a lot of this work has been that when you um, that people who don't often don't understand enough to really judge the quality. Um, I mean, one problem that I see a lot in the U.S. is that uh, um, uh, people are attributing impact to the regulation where actually there are things that are going to happen anyway. They're in the baseline, um, so they shouldn't have been. So, which leads me to wonder how much of the scrutiny is by people who. Um, really have the expertise on the policies and on the evaluation um, approach to really look at the methodology and how much of it's more a sort of political, this is helping me, mm -hmm. my advocacy role or whatever. Well, I think you see that the scrutiny that's done by the Parliament and Council is not political scrutiny, it's administrative scrutiny. Mm -hmm. But what I see is it tends to echo the scrutiny of the Commission. So the re whatever the regulatory scrutiny board has said is usually echoed by the opinions of Parliament, for example. I mean, that's a study that could be done by a, a student is to look at these opinions. But in my, in my personal experience, usually if the Commission says the model has this fault or this should have been explained or there's some criticism of the impact assessment, then usually the Parliament follows suit. Sometimes they find other things, but I, I will say that all of them have common concerns. They're concerned about quantification or the lack thereof. They're concerned about methodology. Um, and often they're concerned that the, that the justification for EU action is not um, as fully described as it could be. So they have the expertise in the Parliament in the Court of Auditors in a different sort of way. Um, the Council, not as much, but they still tend to follow suit. Elizabeth, yeah. I may have miss, missed sure. it, or it may be consumed in a bigger uh, process element, but do you have a process for public comment when a regulation is yeah. proposed yeah. and in a 28-state Enterprise, how do you manage that to ensure that one one population doesn't dominate the comments or something? Well, it, it, it is a good comment. Right now, I would say that we're almost drowning in consultation. So, as I said, from the from the very beginning, when you have an idea, the department has to put out a two to three page indication of what it's going to do, and that's for feedback. Then in the impact assessment process, there'll be a 12-week consultation. Now, sometimes you can get, um, the, and here, the consultation is not on a draft. It's not on an impact assessment. It's in order to 
feed into the impact assessment. So it's a series of questions and, and, and many, many stakeholders find it too open to be useful. But at any rate, there is a 12-week consultation there. The service is obliged to summarize the consultation, take it into account, and it should be reflected both in the impact assessment and in the, in the explanatory memorandum that goes with the proposal. I would say on average you get about 100 to 150 responses per consultation. Some have tremendously high numbers. So the first air quality, for example, consultation was 10,000. The last consultation on our nature legislation, evaluation, a fitness check, got over 500,000 responses. So then you get into the question, how do, you pro how, how, how do you process these responses? And I think there, OIRA in the States has developed some IT tools for processing. I think generally speaking, the responses we get are from organizations rather than individuals, and so therefore it's fairly easy to summarize the inputs. But we're not required, as in the notice and comment system here, the Commission not required to it puts out the comments that have been received, but it's not required by law to write it down like O'Reilly has to write down all the comments for the rules, I believe, or they're judicially, they're held judicially responsible. The Commission can summarize the positions, if you like, and then um, put that in the impact assessment and the proposal. As I mentioned before, the U.S., and the business community criticized the Commission previously for not putting out the draft proposal for comment before it was adopted by the Commission. But by the Commission, it's still a proposal. The Commission always has resisted that because they want to be the first to take the decision. They don't want to move the political discussion forward. So that remains an issue. But in response to that criticism, now the proposal itself is put out for feedback before it goes to the legislature. I think you have to see, it's a little bit too recent to see what the uptake is on that, but I suspect that it probably won't be that great. I mean, it was a big political argument until the possibility was there, and I don't think that many people take, that many associations or individuals take advantage of it. But it depends a bit on the subject. For example, um, after the Paris shootings, the Commission had a um, proposal on firearms in in the works. I think it was an evaluation, there was no impact assessment, but we were talking about emergencies, they wanted to have legislation on the table, put the amendment on firearms legislation on the table. <coughs> um, after, after, after it was adopted by the Commission in relatively record speed, there was up to 10,000, I think, um, comments on the feedback after adoption. A little bit the exception, I think, because the stakeholders didn't have the possibility beforehand to to comment on the particular um, proposal. But firearms, as in Europe as here, generate a lot of public interest. So, again, that sort of is a, um, distorts the statistics. But you can make comment along along the cycle. The question is now: people complain that there's too many opportunities, and they would like to have the opportunities narrowed so where they can make meaningful comment. But I, th I think it's a holy grail. I'm not sure we'll ever um, reach that. So just briefly, um, moving along.
Yeah. The same data, same analysis, same results, um, but now done to fit the prescribed yeah. form. Uh, more substantial rewrite would be um, new data was gathered, new analysis was done, we, we get different conclusions, but proceed with the uh, proposed regulation. And the most substantial would be uh, our views about the regulation are changed by this. Um, and, and therefore it's either withdrawn or amended. Uh, can you say what the mix is? Well, I suspect, I mean, my experience is that most are not a fundamental rethinking of, a, of, of, of the options. In most cases, they will come back with additional analysis. Um, I can use the example of roaming, for example, um, because I did a case study on the roaming regulation, a little bit unique, but the Commission had adopted legislation, a regulation going in a certain direction in 2012. Politically, the decisions were reversed in 2013 while the industry was getting ready for the implementation of something that had just been adopted. Obviously, that's something that's difficult to analyze and difficult to justify from a political, from a technical point of view, because, because the, because it was in essence a political decision. The first impact assessment did not try. The revision of that impact assessment made a much better attempt at trying to justify, um, or or at least to to expand on the option that had been announced politically. So it's just a little example. It is an example where the impact assessment had to be basically redone, maybe not for the right purposes, <laughs> because it was a justification in a way of a political decision, but, but it was done. Normally speaking, I think that they, there's probably a relook at the problem analysis. There could be more data brought in. There could be questions about what the impact might be in one member state or another where the service has to go off and, and find um, uh, better data or put better inputs into the model, if you like. But I think on average it's probably more of uh, finishing or um, filling out the impact assessment rather than going back to the drawing board. I would say in most cases, there, there, there may be, I think, what you see more and more and what we're recommending to services is they should not have, they should not designate themselves at technical level a preferred option. The options should be there, but they should not necessarily say which is preferred. It becomes fairly obvious, but, um, but I think the preferred option is something that should be decided at political level if the evidence is there. So moving on quickly, I think in terms of legislative discussions, um, there's a possibility for three readings between the Council and the Parliament. Um, in 2000, 2004, about 30% went through first reading, which is when you have a relatively rapid parliamentary process. Now it's up to 75%, and many attribute that to the fact that the proposals are better prepared and the Commission does a better job in guiding the discussions in the legislature. Better implementation, um, infringement cases are going down. I wouldn't say it's entirely due to our focus on implementation. In fact, probably not, the causal relationship's not that strong. But I think it has had some effect. 
on the burden reduction, so I'm talking about up to now mainly about the flow of legislation. If you look at the stock of legislation, um, this commission has chosen a two-prong approach, one to reduce the volume of legislation being proposed, and secondly, to try and cut the cost of the legislation on the books. The first is easy to show that there's been a reduction in the amount of primary legislation, if you like, going through the commission. On REFIT, the Regulatory Fitness Program, you can go through the scoreboard of all 150 measures, but there's no aggregation. So I think that's a main, it is a weakness because we cannot say more than through anecdotal evidence what cost savings are being achieved. The 25% reduction in administrative burden, it was met, but what do I mean when I say it was met? It was met on paper because we did a baseline calculation um, and we calculated if the legislation was adopted, there would be a 25% reduction in paperwork. So this but, is a very narrow definition of burden. Yeah, it's a very narrow definition of burden. It's only paperwork. Um, and furthermore, when we went back in 2012 to see if it actually had happened in practice, the problem was there was no monitoring, monitoring framework set up and therefore Member states didn't have the data, and we more or less had to run the calculations again, and it was not a very success satisfactory ex post evaluation. I think you see that for many areas of legislation. The, um, the targets are there, the calculations are there, and I'll come to that in one in, one out. But when you go to see if there's a result, you're left wondering. Relevance, I think here, I think the whole system has made a difference to policy making, certainly if you talk to um, commission individuals. Um, I think that in the last 15 years, there's more discussions on, on costs and benefits, both in the commission and in the legislature. There's many examples of more proportionate approaches being taken or not going ahead with certain pieces of legislation. Um, the parliament and the council are using the impact assessments much more um, systematically, which is good. Um, Parliament more than Council so far, but both are committed under a recent agreement to use our impact assessments. Here um, we did a survey last year of business, 15,000 business, to see if how business attitudes to regulation and to what we were doing have changed. Well, 34% see EU legislation as, still see EU legislation as impeding growth, which is down, but not a great figure, but 70% still think that it adds to paperwork. And I'll come in a moment to the most discouraging figure is that only 4% were aware that we were trying to do something about it. So um, proportionality, as I mentioned before, um, the system captures the most significant proposals. Um, most in impact assessment, 78 proposals are going, 78% uh, of the proposals going to the legislature, which are more important ones have impact assessments with them. There are notable exceptions. I think when um, President Juncker came into office, he decided to have an investment plan which was not impact assessed. Whenever there's a crisis, there's not an impact assessment. So most of the home files are not impact assessed, the migration files, um, gun control, there tends to be um, analytical work tends to be overlooked when there's a crisis. Um, on delegating and implementing acts, I could probably lecture, have another lecture on that, but um, they are not as systematically assessed because already the, the primary legislation has been assessed. But because of the feedback mechanisms, 
all of the delegated acts and the implementing acts are put out for feedback. So the idea is that if there's a problem with any of them, that stakeholders will let that be known and that they will be adjusted. I think coming back to what Joe said on proportionality, in the cost calculation side of things, the first big um, wave, if you like, was on administrative cost calculations only. Then go to compliance costs, but overall the cost calculations reflect a fairly small proportion. If they're calculated, then there's a fairly small proportion of uh, overall costs. I looked at case studies, and I'm happy to discuss that with you at some point, but probably not today because time's going, but looking at climate change, roaming charges, and air quality. I think climate change is the example where I looked at it to see, well, what we set out to do and have we achieved it. Yes, we have achieved it. You would say, well, it had nothing to do with the regulation. It was more to do with the economic developments in the interim, in, 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 in the years in between. Well, that I would tend on sort of casual observation to agree with that, but they've actually done some studies in the Climate Change Department to show that the main driver of reaching the, 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 the aims that were set for 2020 was actually technology. So technology, <coughs> policy, and then the economics. Um, you can question the decomposition analysis that's been done, but if you go through that and say, well, policy had a role, therefore the impact assessment probably had a role, and at the time, um, it was probably the climate change package in 2007 was probably the most rapidly adopted package next to air quality that, that had been adopted since. So I think that the analytical base, both in climate change and air quality, has had a, a, a fairly um, positive impact in policy outcomes and in the process. On air quality, the focus was on particulates, and we haven't met our goals there, so a little bit of a question there about drawing any links. That said, I think that the analytical work has been very important in keeping threshold levels where they are, because we've not managed to meet our air quality threshold um, levels, and I think the impact assessment evaluations done in the last few years have been a break on policy, which otherwise probably would have gone ahead with even higher threshold levels that would have been even more difficult to achieve. Roaming's an interesting case. Roaming is the perfect better regulation record, but the problem was that the political level took decisions that had nothing to do with the underlying an analytics, so that was a bit of an exception. Um, if you weigh up the evidence, I think we can say the system is complete. It points to effectiveness, but I think there are a lot of weaknesses in the system, and I'll come to that in a moment. Um, it's relevant, increasingly used, proportionate, um, but there's still a lot of dissatisfaction. Now, you could say, okay, there will always be dissatisfaction. Regulation is, by its nature, political. There'll be people who want more EU, people that want less EU, there'll be member states that are in for more regulation at EU level and others not. So there'll always be a political debate. There's no doubt about that. And in the political debate, there will always be a, a comfort for those in the debate to ask the Commission to regulate better because it's sort of a harmless request. Um, I think we have to be realistic and recognize that there is a continuing flow of new legislation. So after the Lisbon Treaty in 2009, we always had implementing rules before. 
But now you can have delegated and implementing rules. There is an increase in uptake and what I see and observe, but this would have to be tested, obviously, is in many pieces of legislation where the legislator is not sure about what they want to do, they mandate the Commission to work out an implementing or a delegated regulation. So that is not be the best regulation in the sense that, that, that it shows that you probably don't know exactly what you want to do beforehand. On the other hand, it allows flexibility. The EU lawmaking process is very lengthy. It takes almost at least six years from thinking of an idea to get to the member states, then it has to be implemented, so you really don't see impacts until after 10 years. So delegating and implementing acts allow more flexibility in lawmaking, but they have to, they, we have to make sure from a, a flow point of view that they don't um, that they don't um, continue to add cumulative burden, burden to the legislative um, stock. There are quality issues, quantification, problem definition, shortcomings. I think the biggest shortcoming, and, and I can say it because I was responsible for it, is that we don't have a monitoring system for better regulation. So we can't really, I can't stand up and say we've achieved X, Y, and Z in quantitative terms. I need to use anecdotal evidence. I can tell you what we've achieved in terms of putting the system together, but not in terms of results and impacts. I don't think that's unique to the EU. I just see it's, a, it's an area where um, there's room for improvement. Now, alternatives. So would one in, one out? Would regulatory budgeting and targeting work better at EU level? Well, first of all, I don't think that the member state experience is all that positive. Um, the UK is the champion of one in, one out. They started one in, one out in 2011. They went to one in, two out in 2013. They went to one in, three out in 2015. In 2016, the National Audit Office did a pretty damning um, report about all of this to say that the departments, of course, knew how to calculate costs, but there was no evaluation going on. No one knew if, there, if, if the one in and all this cost saving was having the effects that, in policy terms, we wanted. Um, and you can see that the, that, that the amounts go up and down. So the first, the first cull, if you like, was rather big, then the savings diminished, and then if you see the one mil billion that was achieved in 2015-16, it's really a perverse figure because that billion was achieved by introducing legislation banning plastic bags. It's a very weird thing. It's a very, very strange way to save. But the way it was calculated was not a saving on regulation but by the introduction of a new law. So there's a lot of manipulation of statistics going on here with, in addition to other things. The Germans have a very perfect system on paper. They had their 25% reduction program, they met it, they've got 100 people in the statistics office monitoring administrative costs. They took the, the baseline in 2012 after the reduction and they have an administrative cost measurement program every year. They started calculating compliance costs. In 2015 they introduced one in, one out. But again, they're manipulating figures a little bit. One in, one out doesn't doesn't calculate one-off investment, it doesn't look at the cost of EU legislation, it doesn't look at the cost of initiatives that are in the coalition agreement, which means most important initiatives, even though they say that, that there'd be no exceptions there. And furthermore, because it doesn't take one, it doesn't take investment costs 
and only takes new legislation into um, consideration, you have some perverse results. For example, they say 1.4 billion, but at the same time, the minimum wage in 2016 added 2.5 billion to the costs in the economy. But they didn't consider it a one-in because the minimum wage legislation had been decided in 2014. So even though the costs went up to business tremendously, it didn't enter into the one-in, one-out. So my sort of casual view on the member state experience and the two member states that have, have really invested in one-in, one-out is that Yes, the calculations are being done, so yes, there's more of an appreciation, a realization amongst the departments of cost, but there's no emphasis on benefits, for example. I mean, they're not looking, the Germans don't calculate benefits at all, they make that clear. Um, and then you have the French, <laughs> which is an interesting example. The French have been through various programs of simplification, but they decided in uh, 2015 to have one in one out and Macron has, has said that he will enforce one in one out but they don't have methodology so departments can decide themselves weighing up one bill against another bill what's when one in and what, what it should be proportionate but there's no methodology to calculate what that would be so I'm not sure that the French will, will show many results so I think is it fit for purpose at EU level Probably not. I'll come to you in a minute. Just if you take one, I mean, we always joke at EU level and we say, well, if we have one in, it's 28 out because we're replacing member state legislation. But that's a nice sort of joke, but it doesn't really work because if it's a directive, they have to go back and introduce the EU law into their national law. So I don't use that very often. But one, one in, one out, as all the regulatory policy people in the room know, doesn't look at benefits, so it's very one-sided and you can forgo many benefits by only looking at costs. <clears throat> at the EU level, what would it mean? It means the Commission would, when they make a proposal, they would have to repeal another proposal. But we have no control over repeal. We could only propose to repeal. So it could happen in the legislature that they decide they don't want to repeal or they add on to the bill that's being repealed and we have tried in the past to get the legislature to try and agree that that which we want to repeal or which we want to consolidate, should that should just happen. But the Parliament and Council do not like to be bossed around by the Commission, obviously, and so they will never agree legally to do to be mandated to repeal something. So the, the process itself does not lead does not lend itself to, to, to one-in-one-out types of systems. And <clears throat> obviously, I think you saw, I saw this very much when we tried to do the evaluation of the 25% administrative burden reduction, was that the legislative process is so long, just by its very nature, that by the time you get around to to bring benefits to those at the end of the process. One presumes that you're doing one in, one out to bring relief to business. Well, by the time you get around, or they get around to feeling the relief, so many years have gone by that they can't even remember what you started out to do. That's just the reality, the, the practical reality. And probably more legislation has come onto the books in the interim that it's bothering them more than whatever you tried to start out to do. So I still... Um, I'm not convinced that regulatory budgeting is fit for purpose at EU level. Sorry, now. 
For sure. The, the, I think what I would say generally is that the initial focus 10 years ago on administrative burden has passed. I think that, that if, 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 I think that the, the, the limitations of focusing only on paperwork have been seen because in the end it was not that, it was not the administrative cost that business were most worried about or citizens in a certain sense, although I will come in a minute to perceptions, there's still a perception of paperwork. So I think business is generally concerned about compliance costs. And you're very right that there are many ways that you can tackle administrative burden which are not linked to legislation. But the fact of the matter is that at EU level, much of what is done is done through legislation rather than, than soft approaches. So I think you see at member state level, and, and there are many examples in Portugal, for example, they've had tremendous, um, made tremendous progress in 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 making all of their administrative procedures at local level, getting your driver's license, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, much easier through e-processes and so on. So yes, there are many, many ways to tackle administrative burden that don't have to do with regulation, but where regulation is creating the administrative burden, the idea is that you should try and reduce it to the extent possible. But for every burden, um, for example, data collection is considered by many to be an administrative burden, but if you're going to have good regulatory policy, you need the data in order to, 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 to be able to monitor and evaluate. So there's many sides of the coin. Um, I'd just like to take a couple of minutes, because we're almost at the end now, looking at um, outlook. I think if you, obviously I, I, I still need to draw a few conclusions. I think the evidence is what it is. If I was to look at shortcomings in the system, or if you like a deficit, I would say that there's a deficit in, in quality. I think that we need to, or the EU needs to be much better in quantification. It is improving. There's a lot of sophistication coming in models and so on. But I think there's room for improvement there. Um, I think that the legislation or however we adapt our regulatory system, we have to be able to, to move quickly. We need to be able to regulate in a flexible way to take account of technological change. I think that's a, a big challenge, a qual quality challenge, if you like. I think that the body of legislation, whether it's at EU level or elsewhere, is quite mature. There are not that many new areas of legislation, and therefore there should be a natural shift to making sure what's on the books is implemented and that it's monitored and that you evaluate. And I think there's, although a lot of progress has been made in regulatory evaluation, I think there's still progress to be made. I think that if you look at the US, there's even less. 
and also in the audit report I referred to in the UK, they were very critical about no evaluation being done on regulations. So I think that's an area where there, there is a, a lot that can be improved. Um, on the regulatory policy system itself, I think that um, if we need to improve accountability and that means you need some sort of monitoring system. So there I would say that, that we could improve and by putting a monitoring system in place, you can enhance accountability. Now there, I would not want to make anything too complicated, but I think you see in the priority areas of legislation, there are monitoring and assessment frameworks in place. They're looking at whether the policy has achieved the objective. They're not looking at whether they've been achieved in the most cost-effective way or generating net social benefit. So I think there's a lot of room to int better integrate regulatory policy factors or criteria in the monitoring evaluation frameworks for policy areas and that's how I would suggest they go about it. <clears throat> I think that um, another area obviously with delegating and implementing acts I think they need to be looked at but the, the basic legislation has been assessed for environment, social, economic impact. So I think there that you need to consider much more proportionate approach to um, assessing delegated and implementing acts and maybe there take some inspiration from the US and the rules, some, not the whole system. Um, international regulatory cooperation is a completely not different subject and I won't um, touch on that now but I think the, the last slide I'll show you is something where I think we really need to improve and I heard the same from Mrs. Katz when she was here in November and that's on communication. Um, this last week, Tony Blair <clears throat> was in Brussels talking on Brexit and he mentioned in his speech, obviously, that we've done a lot of good work on better regulation, but that it's still a big issue for people and I think the fact that no one knows what we've done on better regulation, or very few in the business community, which was the, the, the clientele for what we were doing, um, and that, of course, in the popular press there's still a lot of work to be done, I think it speaks for continued effort on communication but also I think in this day and age and I don't need to say this when everyone's questioning facts and evidence I think that the, the need for better regulation is even stronger than it has been in the past. So with that I thank you and open up the floor for discussion.